In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the key lessons passed down from generation to generation of parish priests is a simple mantra. If you want to change churches, change Sunday morning. Sunday morning in most congregations is close to sacrosanct. To change when the services are happening is to risk the unemployment line. Worse yet, to change what Sunday morning looks, feels, sounds, or smells like was for most of Christian history to risk losing not only your job, but your dignity, and in some cases, your life. So it was nearly 50 years ago when the trial use Book of Common Prayer arrived in places like Christ Church with very little, if any, fanfare. I took some time this week to read back through the vestry minutes of the late 70s and 80s, and uh, the first chance that they had to use the prayer book here at Christ Church, the diocesan office wanted your plan by the first Sunday of Advent in 1977. They thought that they might try it after Christmas, and maybe Lent, or perhaps in May. <laughs> by June 7th, 1978, right one morning prayer was decided to be close enough to the old prayer book that they could give it a try. On August 2nd, 1978, the vestry and Howard Surface decided to keep using Right One for the foreseeable future. April 4th, 1979, Howard said he might consider trying Right Two. And in August, he was still thinking about it. I couldn't find exactly when it went from being thought about to being used. But I did find out that there is one piece of the service in the new prayer book that made people uncomfortable around here for almost a decade. In October of 1987, 1987, after a trial period of celebrating the Eucharist at at least one service every Sunday for a month, in the month of September, the feedback was clear. And the one thing that kept people from liking the new service was the passing of the peace. They hated it. Now, truth be told, Christ Church in Bowling Green wasn't the only church that hated the passing of the peace. The peace was, uh, it felt like a brand new thing. It had been an integral part to the service of Holy Eucharist since before the fifth century. But as with many things in the Roman Catholic liturgy, it became more and more focused on the clergy over time. By the time of the Reformation, the peace in a Roman Catholic mass was exchanged only between the celebrant and the deacon. God forbid the people would talk to each other. The Reformation saw the peace as another place where clericalism had run amok and so it disappeared from reformed prayer books. We had the words without the actions in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, the first in Anglicanism, but it disappeared by 1552. So it's no wonder then that the peace felt so out of the ordinary. To stop in the middle of the service for what feels like a social call after 425 years of not doing it would feel pretty strange. But of course, the social aspect of the peace uh, 
is not actually what the peace is all about. At its core, the passing of the peace is an opportunity to live into the confession of sin and the absolution that we pray immediately before. Before reaching to, out to shake the hand of a friend, if there's someone you know you have sinned against, or if there is a neighbor you know has sinned against you, seek them out to share the peace of Christ and the reconciliation of the world. The peace is, in many ways, the liturgical embodiment of our gospel lesson this morning, wherein Jesus spells out for his disciples the principles of forgiveness in the community of faith. The church is full of people, and therefore, it is full of sinners. But we are sinners who have been redeemed by Christ, sinners who ideally seek out peace on a somewhat regular basis. Jesus knew our sinfulness and wanted to ensure that the kingdom of God would continue to be built in his absence. And so he gave his disciples a few suggestions on how to deal with the inevitability of church conflict. Woven into each of these steps, whether it's uh, addressing the person who sinned against you face to face or bringing them before the whole congregation is the underlying mission of the church to restore to unity all people with God and with each other. And then when all else fails, Jesus says, when the one who has sinned against you won't even listen to the whole church, then treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now it'd be easy to read this as Jesus giving us permission to excommunicate anybody we disagree with. After all, Gentiles and tax collectors were the worst. Gentiles were bad enough. They were outsiders who didn't follow the law of Moses and worshiped false gods. But tax collectors, they were downright awful. Tax collectors were Jewish men who conspired with the pagan Gentile government to take taxes from God's chosen people, paid with coins with the emperor's face on it, and who often took a couple of extra coins for themselves while they were at it. You couldn't be worse than a two-faced traitor tax collector. And Jesus tells his disciples to treat the unrepentant Christian like one of them. Problem is, before he became one of the original 12 disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. One of those very same two-faced traitors. In chapter 9, we hear the story of Matthew and Jesus meeting for the first time. Matthew was in his tax booth minding his own business when Jesus came up to him and said, follow me. In an instant, Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. And that night they had dinner at Matthew's house and the table was filled with Gentiles and sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees heard about it and they raised a stink. How can your teacher eat with such scum? They asked the disciples. Jesus replied, healthy people don't need a doctor, but only those who are sick. I have come to call sinners, 
not those who think they are good enough already. And if an offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's not quite as cut and dry as we might hope. Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors pretty well. He healed them. He ate with them. He called them to follow him. In short, he loved them. When all else fails, when we have hurt each other and reconciliation seems so far away, Jesus tells us to love. For it is only through love that unity with God and peace with our fellow humans is possible. Now, truth be told, this commandment to love in the face of sin has been used pretty poorly by the church over the years. It's been used to tell the abused to stay with their abusers. It's been used to gloss over some pretty awful behavior by bishops, priests, and deacons. It's been used to bludgeon people into reconciliation. So let me be clear, Jesus is not calling us to stay in harmful relationships out of some duty to love. Sometimes to treat someone as a tax collector or a Gentile is to give them over to God's grace because God is God and we are not. That said, the goal of Christian relationship is love, peace, and wholeness. And when those things are possible, we should pursue them. When we sin against our neighbor, we should seek forgiveness. When a neighbor sins against us, we should speak the truth in the hopes of reconciliation. And when, by God's grace, reconciliation does happen, we should reach out our hands, share the peace of Christ, as we prepare to join in the communion of Christ's body and blood. May God's peace abound in you, now and always. Amen.